Hi, my name is Mike Bros. I'm your host. I want to welcome our listeners to All Things Mental Health with Mike Bros. I want to thank BART Studios here in downtown Tulsa, doing incredible work, and they're so gracious to let us use their fantastic studio here to be able to produce this. And today, I really want to welcome State Representative Regina Goodwin, District 73, Oklahoma State Representative. And, and for all transparency for the listeners, Representative Goodwin is my state representative. I live in her district. I live next door to some of her family members for the last 42 years. State Representative Regina Goodwin, welcome to All Things Mental Health with Mike Bros. Thank you very much. And it's an absolute privilege to be with you because, you know, you are synonymous with mental health. You are synonymous with all things good. So it's just good to be here. Well, that is so kind of you to say that. And I've been a real admirer and a, you know, obviously a constituent, but just a real admirer of of you and your family and your incredible contributions to this community. And just, I want maybe start out, just take, take a little time and talk about your family's history in the Tulsa community and the Oklahoma Eagle and even beyond that. I'm a believer in history. Tulsa has a rich history and some of it's really good. Some of it as we know, it has not been good as a, as a black woman growing up in the Tulsa community. That's a part of our conversation here. But take a little bit of time and just tell us about your family and so the listeners can have more history there. Well, I'm a fourth generation of the Goodwin family, and my great-grandfather was James Henry Goodwin and Carly Marie Goodwin. They had traveled here from Water Valley, Mississippi to get away from oppression. My great-grandfather told stories of having to defer to white folks all the time just because of skin color, not because of integrity, not because of particular contribution that someone has made in life that you might defer to them, but just simply skin color. And he would have to step off of the sidewalk if a white person was coming. He'd have to always tip his hat. And had been so conditioned that one true story, one day he was walking and there was a white cow in the pasture and he just saw the figure and he tips to a white cow, a white cow, right? Yes, because he and was so, so conditioned, conditioned right? Yeah. Walking down the street, looking up, oh, might be a white person, just, you know, tips hat, right? So when he gets to that place that you're so conditioned and, and a society does not see all folks as equal, that has policy and laws in place that are not equally applied, and they were very concerned about education and wanted to get more than a fourth grade education there in Mississippi, so they decided to move. They had come to Tulsa in 1914. And my grandfather is Edward Goodwin Sr. That was the son of Carly Marie and James Henry. And again, had come here along with my great aunt, Anna Carroll, to seek a better life. And many folks were flocking to Indian Territory, then Oklahoma, the state, because we had more black townships here in the state than any other place. And it was like, that was the word. This is the place to come. Really? Uh, if, oh, absolutely. They would do campaigns. They actually intercepted my great-grandfather and said, you ought to redirect what, your course and, and try, you know, Oklahoma Territory. Come to this state that is flourishing in terms of progressive, industrious black folks that were taking care of their families and building their own wealth in the midst of the laws, right, that said we should be separate. So in being segregated, folks were still able to build right? What folks intended for harm, we actually turned into a haven. Then you go into 1921, there's a Tulsa race massacre. 
one of the greatest incidents of racial violence that we know in America. And it was my grandfather, who was E.L. Goodwin Sr., who was a senior in high school at Booker T. Washington, and my great aunt, also at Booker T. Washington. They were preparing for their prom, about to graduate, as we all get that feeling if we're blessed to do so. Right. And we're preparing to graduate. So you have your prom, your dance. You're and they excited. were excited. Yes. Yeah. And they were preparing for that. And they got word that trouble was coming. And that was, as you know, May 31st, June 1st, the tragedy and the, the murder and the mayhem, quite frankly, and the hatred and, and, and the racism that sparked all of that was felt by our family. Lost the Goodwin building at 123 North Greenwood. It was a two-story building. Lost a number of rental properties and homes, 14 or 15 or so. As you know, 35 blocks burned down, all because, supposedly, a black man and a white woman had an interaction. They knew that day that Dick Rowland had not violated Sarah Page. He was forced to go to the Drexel building to use the bathroom. He was a shoeshine guy. And that was his routine. Even the police officers knew that he had not assaulted her, even though those were these blaring headlines in the Tribune, you know, saying nab Negro and elevator. And the, the missing headline that everybody's talking about, you know, to lynch Negro tonight. Those incidents, again, led to the destruction of many of the black sections of Tulsa, Greenwood specifically, and the murder of some, some 300 folks some 11,000 folks in the city displaced. So in the midst of that, my grandfather did not graduate. He did all of his. He didn't have this ceremony of graduating, right? And with the family property being destroyed, my great-grandfather decided to stay and rebuild in Tulsa. So that is part of our history that my family did help rebuild, build the first Greenwood and then rebuild. My grandfather was one of the youngest entrepreneurs on Black Wall Street, right? When the, and during the rebuilding phase and prior to that, my great-grandfather James Henry, prior to burning down the Tulsa Star newspaper, my great-grandfather was the business manager there with the publisher, A.J. Smitherman. So we do have a history here. More importantly, my grandmother used to teach me and all of us that a service is the rent we pay for our room and board on earth. And we owe a lot to our ancestors those that fought through the racism, those that fought through the indignities, much that still happens today. And, and that's what we have to do, do the best we can to make Tulsa better, make ourselves better. That's what we're trying to do. You know, I just feel a lot richer from listening to you talk about that, Representative Goodwin. I mean, I'm really embarrassed and to say that I think a lot of the white community here doesn't know all that history still. I think the 100-year recognition of the race massacre helped. I think more information got out there. But I still talk to white folk here in the community who don't get it. Now, we're going to talk in, a little later about the issue of question of reparations. I want us not to ignore that. I think we're never I, going to ignore that. You're not going to ignore that. And we're going to, we're, I want us to talk about, we're going to circle back. I would like to take you a little more time about the, the role and the function of the Oklahoma Eagle in the community and kind of historically with that, that your family published? So a great segue, I think, when we talked about the Tulsa Star and my great-grandfather being the business manager, James Henry, for A.J. Smitherman, during the race massacre, the Tulsa Star is burned to the ground, the, the business. The press remained, and out of getting that press out of the ashes, the Oklahoma Eagle was born. Theodore Ballman was the first publisher. My grandfather would then have it and own it in 1936. And so the Oklahoma Eagle has been around for some hundred years. The Oklahoma Eagle since 
under the ownership of my grandfather, who was E.L. Goodwin Sr. Mm -hmm. That's how he had come with the Oklahoma Eagle. And my, my grandfather, you always say, we make America better when we aid our people. And so that was quite frankly saying, yes, we live within a larger society with a white dominant culture. But within that culture, black folks have to do the best they can by lifting ourselves up and and fighting through all that we have to fight through. So it would say we make America better when we aid our people on the Oklahoma Eagle masthead. And that was a part of the legacy. I mean, it was right there on the masthead yes. of the Eagle. Yes. And yes. that message always getting out there with each publication, not forgetting that. That's right. Hanging on to that very important touchstone. And not running away from the fact that we have to help <clears throat> ourselves, right, in order to help others. Right. right. So we make America better when we aid our people. So if we can maneuver and navigate these issues that we're dealing with, then we can help larger society. Our issues and our problems are American issues and problems. They're not just black problems. Right. Absolutely. And so as we fast forward to today, somewhere along the line, you decided to run for public office. And I always say, man, my hat's off to anybody who will put their name on a ballot because it's a it's a big decision. But where? how did it get to that you... Where did that? Where did all that come from? So, have always been involved in the community. My mother is Alquita. My father, Ed Goodwin Jr., who had been co-publisher of the Eagle, and would go around town, knowing everybody, talking to everybody. And my mother, quite frankly, had instilled us that we don't just do outdo, because we learned early on you have to be twice as good, quite frankly, in America to get half as much, and that is systemic in America, quite frankly. And so being rooted in that, we were taught to be our best. We're not perfect, but what we can do is try to be our best. In that community service, always involved, and have been asked for 20 years, run for office, run for office, run for office. And we were doing quite a bit without a title. I found myself one day looking at the television, arguing, and that day actually was the last day to file for office. And I said to myself, why am I hollering at the TV? No one can hear me there. I feel there's an injustice. Maybe I can try to address it in a different manner. I literally had not talked to family, anything. I jumped in the car, went down the turnpike, hurried up and filled out all my paperwork, you know. That's how I got involved. Lost my first race, come back two weeks later, and the state representative seat was open. And by God's grace, won that seat. And in 2015, since 2015, we've been serving. And trying to do it with integrity and trying to do it with conviction and courage and all of that, I think, is necessary really to serve the public properly. So really, your service in the state house is really a longstanding extension of historical involvement in this community, not just keeping to yourself or whatever, but no, out uplifting yourselves as well as other people in your community. And that is just that is just a theme that runs historically in your family, but also right to today where you're at right now as an elected official in our state. Absolutely true. Seriously, I've been asked for decades to run for office, and we were very effective. Again, not having a title. Going to the school board meetings, fighting Ward Connolly when he had come to Oklahoma, we were the first state to defeat Ward Connolly, and we did it with $4,000, and he had 400000 That was before we even had a title, right? And that was all the madness of them trying to stop what we thought was fair progress as related to jobs and schools, et cetera, and contracting. So yes, always involved. And then 
from this perspective, just addressing issues in a different manner. Yeah. I know, you know, I've living next door to Jim and his family for 42 years. Yes. And I remember one night, Vivian invited us over for dinner. Yeah. And the kids were home. Some of the kids were home. And she yes. wanted us to come over. And I think I've shared with you. I've, I've known all the kids, but David in particular, he and I were even to this day. I just we, talked to David yesterday. Yeah, he's and he's in the newspaper business, yes, by the way. Right. But I remember we sat down to dinner and everybody sits down and, and we started eating. And Jim goes around and says, "Okay, let's go around. What did you learn today?" And he goes around everybody at the table. What did you learn today? And I was. My wife and I were so impressed by that. I, I, he didn't ask me. I thought, man, what, Mike, Mike, what did you learn today? <laughs> and I thought, hey, he was going to ask me too, what have you. But, you know, you could see that, you know, the family legacy tradition of education, learning, involvement, proactivity, you know, making the world a better place. And, mm-hmm. and, and here you are today in your role as a, a state representative, District 73, you know, being able to continue to do that. You know, it has been challenging, it has been rewarding, it has been frustrating, but the bottom line is these are fights worth having. I'm a Democrat, I'm a black woman out of 149 folks at the Capitol in Oklahoma City. And when I had first come into office, I was the only black woman in, in the state, in the state house. In the Senate and in, no, 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 in, in the, the state house, house. In the state, in the house. state house. Okay. And... Since that time, we've grown to three. All the way to three. Yes. That's where we stand now, there in the state house. And this year, we only have 20 Democrats. We have 81 Republicans. So we do not have the leverage in terms of votes to sway any measure. Right. And folks ask me, well, how do you have the stamina and how do you have the energy to go in and get, come out with an L on your forehead every day? Truth of the matter is, Understand when you go up the steps, we're going to lose the votes, right? But I do think that in terms of having a conscience that we are on the right side of history, and I think those are victories every day we can hold on to our integrity and talk about issues related to justice and how do we deal with our fellow man. Those are always victories every day I come out of the Capitol. And we are still effective. We might not win the votes, but we are still helping people every day. And I can go through a list of folks and agencies that get help because of our involvement. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I've had conversations about, you know, I like to think that we're past microaggressions, overt, as well as micro. Now, why would you like to think that? Well, I, probably because I'm white and I walk <laughs> around. And my experience, is, I think white folk have a hard time getting this, that when I walk around as a white male in this culture, my experience is very different from the experience you have walking around Absolutely. in the culture. And I think white folks have a hard time getting that. Right. And And so... You know, I mean, you've shared with me some of the things you have dealt with and, you know, no names, but I do want our listeners to hear just a little flavor of some of the things that you've had to deal with from other elected officials. And it doesn't matter regard in my party, what you're all elected officials. That's a big deal in our democracy, in our republic to be an elected official. But the, the, some of the things, share, share a few of the things that you've had to run into, and I think it's important for our yeah. listeners to hear about it. And the thing is, this should not be surprising for anyone. So my concern is for anybody that doesn't believe it or 
doesn't give it much weight, or you just say it's difficult for white folks to think that we still have differences in America, we still have differences in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we certainly have differences at the Capitol. America, I say it all the time, I say it on the House floor, America was rooted in racism, period. Yes. Right? It was built on the black back. Black folks yes. uh, were treated inhumanely. And again, Senate Bill 1 at the Capitol was about segregating black folks and white folks as related to transportation. So here we are in 2023. Again, we don't have, I think we have a total of eight black members total. Total. And Senate, Senate in-house. And, house. and absolutely, when we talk about our bills that we take months and months to prepare, and then we go to the Capitol and they won't even hear the bills, and a number of these bills address our issues as it relates to criminal justice reform, as it relates to health care, as it relates to the disparities that we have in education. When we're bringing these bills forward and they're not being heard, we have had press conferences, right, with the Black Caucus saying, once again, our bills are not being heard. That is not happenstance. That is very deliberate. It's very deliberate when I go to the chair of, I, in my time, I've never had a chair that's been Black of a committee. Not one time. Okay. And I bring something different to the table. Right. I bring a different experience to the table. And my experience is no less. My truth is no less than yours. However, as you say, when we go to television and we broadcast the inequities there at the Capitol, someone might say to me, oh, well, why didn't you tell us you were going to go on the news? And I, my, and I remember this was about a bill in particular that said that police officers would not be held to the same standard as other citizens when it came to abuse, right? Yes, there yeah. was a bill that was being, being moving, and I knew we didn't have the votes to stop it, so I wanted to alert the media. We've got a really bad bill that's be, being discussed, and because of that, we were able to stop that bill. We didn't have the votes, but we had somebody that was willing to listen. And then they said, oh, we didn't know this language was in the bill. We didn't. That's not, that's not how we understood the bill. They knew very well what was in the bill. You have to have lawyers to look at the language in the bill before you can even get it submitted. And when we had done that, one of the chairs called me into his office and he said, why don't you tell us you were going to be doing this? I said, well, why didn't you tell me you were going to be running such a bad bill? Right. Right. So, yes, we have these issues at the Capitol. We have fights, again, that I say are worth having, and the disregard oftentimes that's shown when, not with everyone, but with certain members, I'm trying to have a conversation and they just turn around and they're walking down the hallway and I'm talking to their back. That's absolute disregard for myself, just as, for one, a, a, a legislator that's right. been elected. I serve same folks that they do. Right. And we're all serving Oklahomans. Oklahomans. So That's right. it happens. It occurs. No question. Again, this is, as folks say, I signed up for this role. And with that will come lots. Bills that are, are, are embedded, I think, in racism. Anytime you could say, we're going to have a bill that says you can run over protesters. As long as you run over them with due care, those are the kinds of bills that we deal with. And, and it's always, and it, that happened because we had the Black Lives Matter protest, but that was because a black man we watched for eight, nine minutes, right, die in front of our faces as a white officer knelt on his neck. And yet when I want to bring up the insurrection of January 6th, where there was rioting and an insurrection right on 
the Capitol building by white folks, they don't want to talk about that. They want to keep running back to Black Lives Matter. And, and, and there's no way in the world you can, no one in Black Lives Matter was trying to, in that way, literally attack the symbol of democracy. They were trying to stop an election, right? So I find folks in Black Lives Matter that are peaceful, that have conviction, I find them to be far more patriotic than any white man that would pretend to be patriotic because he didn't get his way in an election. When an election was fair and we found that there was there were there was nothing that would have changed the outcome of that election, yet they wanted to continue to run on lies and to say that, you know, they were fearful for their America that they know that they were losing their grips on America. Actually, all of that is nonsense and propaganda. And a lot of that continues today, even at the Capitol. Yeah, here in Oklahoma. Absolutely. Yeah. Both capitals. Both capitals. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, how you know, this is about you know, you said, oh, you know, this, uh, this is your podcast about mental health. And, of course, I wrote you back and said my definition of mental health is very, very broad. But And that- I agreed with you when you said that. I absolutely agreed with you because when I saw kind of what you wanted to talk about, I absolutely, in my head, I said this is all related to mental health. And when you said that response, you were right on the money. And, and as I say that, as I say that, as I say that, absolutely, there are white folks at the Capitol that have helped me. When I get bills passed and signed by the governor, you know some white folks have helped me, right, period. Right. And I am appreciative. I'm appreciative of those folks that I first remember literally working across the aisle with me to even have my bill brought onto the House floor. Yes. I remember the, I remember the names. I remember the people. I remember the faces. And even as recently as, as this year to be able to, as it relates to the 1921 race massacre, scholarships started by Representative Don Ross and Senator Maxine Horner. Two white men in particular helped that get that all the way across the finish line and then to be signed, certainly by uh, Governor Stitt. Uh-huh. And, and while we don't agree on much, it was appreciated that they could see the need for the scholarship. We need to focus on the descendants that should be able to get that scholarship. And then all other students, but but we need to focus on black students in particular. Yes, because those were the folks that were most harmed during the massacre. Right. Those were the folks that were harmed. Period. Right. In the race massacre. Yes, there were other white deaths. However, the instigators and how that originated, and who was most harmed, that was black folks in the Greenwood area. So I wanted to add that just as we're talking about what's going on at the Capitol. I wanted to add that. I really appreciate that. And and you talk about some of the bills you've that you've been able. I mean, you mentioned this one about the scholarships. It, what other other bills? I know like I showed you my car. I said, "Look at my tag." Yes. And, that and you was, said that was my bill. Yeah. That was absolutely we had not discussed it. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was a know. surprise to me. Uh-huh. However, you know, there was Mike Reed had been trying to get a bill a citizen, been trying to get a bill that would honor Juneteenth. And and he always wanted the license plate to say, remembering Black Wall Street. And the proceeds from the license plate would go to Juneteenth. Juneteenth, for folks that that might be listening, has to do with the, basically the late word the Black folks got that they were free as related to slavery. Right. And so it's celebrated every year in Tulsa. And so Mike Reed wanted to have this license plate. I've been trying to work it for some 10 years. And by God's grace, we were able to work together. We got it passed. And you actually have the license plate on your car. 
And that is phenomenal. So we're doing a shout out to everybody. Go and get your, what is called the, the Historic Greenwood District license plate. It serves just as your Oklahoma license plate. You can do one or the other. You just have to buy one or the other. And the proceeds help fund Tulsa's Juneteenth, which is one of the largest in the nation. And in honor of Sherry Gamble Smith, who lost her life too soon, she was the director of Juneteenth, Tulsa Juneteenth Incorporated. And that is, again, something that you have helped support. And I was just delighted to see that. I was in getting my driver's license renewed, and I looked up there and saw that. I said, what? what? How much is that? 40 bucks. And I said, I want one. And I filled out the stuff, and, and it was mailed to me, and I got it out there on my car. I drive it with, and have it on there with great pride. First of all, I think it's way more attractive tag than our uh, agreed, agreed. Uh, I, I think it's way more attractive, but that's just my personal opinion. But but also the message, remembering Black Wall Street, and that we cannot forget because we know if we forget and uh, you know and that gets lost, these things are more likely to reoccur in different ways and shapes and forms. And and again, in honor of my ancestors, I cannot forget. And and when you drive down Greenwood every day. I am reminded we have yet to see justice as it relates to those that were massacred, right? We still live in a city that it seems as if they're waiting for our last survivors that, we, that we're aware of. This is if they're waiting for them to die. Yeah. And years ago, there was a documentary that was named Before They Die that talked about trying to have justice for our survivors. In honor of Miss Leslie Benningfield Randall, who's 108, Miss Viola Ford Fletcher, who is 108, Mr. Hughes Van Ellis, who is 102. We owe it to these folks and their descendants. And I am a descendant of race massacre survivors. Right. But right now, we're trying to focus on those survivors. We owe it to them to, to, to have justice in Tulsa. We can't talk about we're one Tulsa. We can't talk about what a great city Tulsa is if we don't have a day of reckoning as it relates to reparations and the race massacre. And we have it within our power to do so. We don't have the right heart right now to enact legislation, to enact a rule of law as it relates to the courts, to do right by these folks. Right. You know, and it's, it's interesting because there we hear about lawsuits all the time and there are punitive damages awarded. Right. That goes on all the time. But, right. but it's interesting in white culture, I'm generalizing here, but you use the Well, there word, is a dominant white culture. doesn't mean that all white folks are dominant, but there we do exist in a white dominant culture in America. Pre appreciate that clarification. But you mentioned the word reparations. Beautiful word. It, and it doesn't get that sort of in the white culture. It does not get that reaction. And talk about that a little bit more. I think we, we this is something that we have got to deal with and address if we're going to get real a chance for some more healing to go on. Am I? Yeah, and, and, and we have not had any healing because we have not addressed the issue. And when you talk about mental health, absolutely this affects the mental health of not only the folks that died and they're not, certainly those that were going through the horror of being murdered, burned alive in their homes, told to come out with your hands up or you're going to stay in the house here burned to death, right? Those are stories that were the oral history that we know, the documented history that we know, imagine the, the psychological effect, the damage in terms of mental health. The trauma. And 
so physically, emotionally, mentally, that still exists today. That does not go away. Folks running around as if everything is great in Tulsa, everything is not great in Tulsa. And I think we should deal with that. And for anybody that has difficulty with the word reparations, why is that? I ask you, search your heart and you tell me why we can't have reparative justice, why we can't have restorative justice, why we can't reclaim land and and not just have this uh, renovation of Greenwood, which is really gentrification, right? Yeah. It is, I think, imperative that if we're really going to be the best that we can be in Tulsa, that we not be afraid of the word reparations. It is a good word. My license plate on the back of the car says, pay Black Wall Street. P-A-Y-B-W-S. That means pay Black Wall Street. Uh And we're not going to forget for all the lives that were lost. And I also think that when you look at a justice system that right now has it within their power to do right, why have we been dragging this out? Why has the court case been, you know, Attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons had a very creative way to address the issue. And prior to that, this is our third go-around. My great-grandmother, Carly Marie Goodwin, had gone down to the courthouse for reparations and said, you took from me what is mine, and I'd like to have it back. And, of course, she was rejected outright, like so many others, some 200 lawsuits. Right. And so here we are in 2023, still saying the same thing, still no justice, they did not even want me to put the word reparations in 2021 in and in a resolution at the Capitol. They refused to run a resolution where because, I just wanted to take it out. word. In the 2001 report, Representative Ross and Senator Horner said, this is what we need out of this report. We've done the study. These are our four recommendations. Reparations was one of the recommendations. I was simply citing history. And I said to them, I'm not going to change history because you're uncomfortable with the word reparations. This is the word I'm having in this resolution, and, and this is, and I'm going to fight for it. And, and, and the only reason, I think, that they allowed it to be heard on the House floor is because I said, I'm going to try to reach out to every news outlet that will listen. That in Washington, D.C., they have acknowledged what's happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and our own state legislator, our own state legislature, which actually had, in, in 2001, they took the time to, to, to do an investigation. That's a good thing that the Oklahoma State Legislature did. I said, why not acknowledge the good that has happened? And so that was a fight. But it didn't get passed until the very last day of session. And I had to fight for that. There was so much that they tried to do to circumvent that. It's ridiculous. You know, I, I just, I can't comprehend. I mean, that, that has to, I mean, you're in that fight every day there, but it has to hurt. Well, of course. We're human. Of course it hurts. However... The hurt that we deal with every day pales in comparison to having a collar around my neck being torn in half in terms of ancestors and, and the, the, the lynchings and the torture that ancestors had to deal with prior, right? Yes, we have to deal with indignities. We have to deal with injustices. However, we still are here. And as I say, as long as we have life, we got a chance to get it right. We're going to die trying. Yeah. I really appreciate all that, Representative Goodwin. I, I, I appreciate you taking time for our listeners. It's important that I want the listeners of this podcast to hear the things that you're saying. It's really important to help them under better understand 
and better appreciate what you're fighting for and what you're dealing with in the history that's that's that in, leading up to today. And have have this bill we've been working on since 2019. I've, I've authored it again. It's about reparations specifically. If we have a judge that's saying, hey, we really shouldn't be handling this in the courtroom, which I think we should be. And 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 she says this should be handled at the legislature. We've given them ample opportunity since 2019. So introduced the bill last year. I reintroduced the bill this year to ask for $300 million in reparations. And that would just be the state's share. I'm not saying that's all that's owed, but that would be if we can spend $700,000 and we want to lure Panasonic industry here, right? Again, there's no comparison in terms of the harm that's been caused, the lives that were taken, murdered, and the property damages, right? The generational wealth lost. So all of that matters. Again, we made progress at the Oklahoma State Legislature where we got $1.5 million last year for the scholarship. And I'm absolutely appreciative. Again, appreciate it, but you know we can always, always, always do more. The scholarship is called the Tulsa Reconciliation Education Scholarship Program Trust. We now have some $2.3 million in that trust. We had identified that the monies that were sitting there for 20 years were not being adequately spit and and the students were not privy to those dollars. So we're we're changing that around. We've got a wonderful chancellor now, Allison Garrett, who helps oversee that fund. She's been a godsend in terms of fairness and being open to what is right. So we're making progress. And those are the kinds of things that I say that we can still have happen with a lot of persistence, a lot of fight, and just being on the side of right. And absolutely intertwined in all of that is certainly the bill, House Bill 1997 that deals specifically with mental health this year. As we were talking about how do we address this issue, we all know somebody, right? If we're not dealing with the mental health issues ourselves, we know a family member, we know a friend, somebody is dealing with that. And that, that bill, as you know, is House Bill 1997. You know, we, we want to, how can we close the gap? I understand that we've spent some $200 million as it relates to having two facilities that are coming to, to bring about more beds, to have greater alignment between mental health needs and the beds. However, it's still not enough. And again, when I get calls, as I said to you, and you started laughing, when they start calling my office, and I'm not an expert in the field, that means they reached out to everybody they know. And when there is a child in the home that is a threat to themselves, might perhaps do self-harm or harm to others, if I get a call, they're saying there are no beds available, what are we to do? That's when we know, not only in, in, in Oklahoma, but across the nation, this is an issue. And that's why we have the bill that says, can we have a facility? And I talked to you, I talked to many of the folks that you know, that you helped me get in touch with. And the idea, quite frankly, came from listening to other folks that are in the field. And that idea, again, models what happened in New Jersey as it relates to a 24-7, we'd say mental health urgent care. Yeah, we, we think about it for our listeners. You think about urgent care all over. Urgent care centers are, you know, they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. And we're talking about, and particularly for an underserved community Absolutely. in North Tulsa, that there would be located there a urgent mental health care, right? Right. And that's what the bill is all about. Yes. And we added, I wanted to add the beds for if we're trying to fill a gap, right? If someone cannot get to a bed, then this facility would also have 25 beds and an atmosphere, living room environment where family is welcome. It's in right, the language is right in the bill. 
Yes. Yes. And and we know we have some four billion dollars at the state capitol now. So we can't say we don't have the funding. And it is a matter of of helping the underserved communities. And quite frankly, the data shows us that in black and brown communities, there's a, a greater rate in terms of ratio, in terms of those that are affected with mental health challenges. And how are they addressed? Do you have the outlet? Do you have access? Can you afford, right? When folks like, oh, go see a counselor. Do you know how much counseling costs? So and, it's easier said than done. So oh, how do we absolutely. help ourselves? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think also to be able to have that service in a community where people feel comfortable going there. I always t- try to teach my students, one of my social work classes I teach is that, you know, it, this is a hard thing for people to even acknowledge I need mental health assistance or for yourself or your family member. There's still so much stigma. Yeah attached to it, what have you. But if I am going to do that, I'd like to call somewhere or reach out to somewhere or go somewhere where I know that I'm going to be received, right. listened to, understood. Maybe there's somebody there that looks something like me. Right. And and right. if you don't get that, and, and uh, I mean, it starts with that first phone call. It starts with that first contact. And I, I, I mean, I don't have any problems with saying this all to our listeners. The mental health care system in general is not, I would not, I never call, it's not user-friendly. It can do a lot better. I think they're trying. But I think for you in this bill, you're trying to create something in your community that, not not that other people in the community, anybody can use this service that you're talking about. But particularly for- access matters, right? Transportation matters. How how close is that How close is it to me? Exactly. And so- how culturally uh, and, competent are the people that I'm going to be speaking to absolutely. and, and, and pouring my heart and soul? It's a very trying time for family and that person that's experiencing perhaps the first break with a reality psychosis. When it first happens, it's new for everybody. Right. And and how that is handled and, and the folks that are receiving you, they need to know something about you. And I think understanding culture understanding that, quite frankly, a lot of black folks are very private. And they say that, quite frankly, of the, of, of the Indian culture also. And, and it's just how you grow up and who can you trust. Right. Trust has been broken so often or trust has never even been established. Let's start there. Right. And so all of that matters. And this most critical time in your life when you're trying to get better mentally and dealing with the stigma that is attached. And also in the bill, we talk about the church community being involved because I'm a woman of faith. I believe God. I pray. But I also know we need to have also, along with the prayer, those other practical factors that might help move me through a crisis, right? Or anybody through a crisis. And, and I tell you, it's important that we try to destigmatize uh, mental health challenges, mental health illness. But we need to call it what it is. Right. Right. And we can't dance around it. I literally had an interaction with someone we had helped in the past. And they, I was driving, I was at the gas station and they pressed their face up against the window and I looked over and I realized who this was and clearly going through a crisis. Right. And literally I said, how are you doing? And, and literally said to me, I died, but I came back to life and now they're trying to kill me. And so the, the terror that was there, but also there was a familiarity because the person walked up to me. Felt and, comfortable with you, and, knew you. Yeah, even with the psychosis. Right. Right? And that ability to, to be very clear 
and clear thinking in one manner and then also to have the very disjointed and disconnected thoughts all at the same time. And so I'm having this interaction at the gas station and then the security guard comes out, right? Now, I know this person and I don't want any harm to come to this person. Right. And so the security guard comes armed and we've had complaints about this person said, hold up. I know this person. We're having a conversation and I am hoping that you will handle with care. I said to the security guard, this person is having some challenges right now. And I said, I think you would understand. I said, I think you would understand that. So the guard was like, like, shake, like shaking head, like, no, I wouldn't. Like, I don't know anything about any of this. I looked the security guard in the eye again. I said, either you or a family member or a friend that you know has had challenges. I know that's true. And the security guard said, yes, you're right. And I'm going to handle this with care. Right? Nice. But you had to be there to intervene. Yeah. And if you yeah. wouldn't have been there, it could have had a Could have been very, very ugly. Very ugly, very different outcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so you hear from constituents about this over and over again. And so that really has led you to really construct this bill. Yeah. And then you and I went over and I met with the Oklahoma Department representatives from the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Services. Yeah. And it was a a good conversation, but a I'd call it a difficult conversation. Is that what 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 was your take on that? Again, been there since 2015, and quite a few of the conversations that I have go that way, right? So I walk in kind of expecting a certain disconnect, a certain we know better than you, really D- hearing D- you, discounting you. Yeah, uh-huh. and and I would want again if at the, at the very least for us to hear each other. And at the end of the day, when you're telling me what you're going to accept or what you don't like, at the end of the day, we're still lacking beds and we're still getting calls from folks dealing with mental health challenges so we know that the bill could be productive. So why would you reject a bill that can help Oklahomans? That's, that's the bottom line. And if we can get through all of that other stuff, right, and get to the other side of what can this bill do, then I think we're all better off. And that's basically what I've asked. I would like certainly to have the support. and Of the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. Well, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we'll see how that goes. And again, that's not unlike many of the meetings that I have. Where you are sort of almost, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I almost, it felt like almost like patronizing. Is that? Well, Again, we are, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, you're in an atmosphere with elected folks and agencies and money, right? And either folks tell you what they think you want to hear, or they will be extremely blunt on the other end, right? And I don't want anybody to tell me what I want to hear. I don't want anybody being extremely racist or blunt on the other end. I want somebody right in the middle that's just a straight shooter who's operating with integrity and who's actually listening. And we can have an honest dialogue. That's we can, right. Let's we do can, that. We can discuss Let's the that. issues. We can have differences of opinion, and we can acknowledge those. Right. But we can also try to hear each other. That's all you're asking for. Absolutely. And and that's basic. Right. And, and I've expressed that. So we'll see how we do. We know that, actually, I was even told, we don't need your bill. We just need funding. And here's what you can do. Right. You go talk to such and such. Right. Yeah. Well, well, again, again, I have 
been there since 2015, I know it's best to have a bill, the vehicle, to even open discussion. And while you're telling me you don't need the bill, as an elected official, I do need the bill. And it is a vehicle, again, to help us perhaps get to funding. So please don't tell me you don't need the bill when I have been told by leadership at the Capitol, you need a bill. So it's a matter of understanding how everybody operates, having a, a decent regard for how folks function. And I always think that's a good place to start. And you're in the bill, you're trying to represent the needs, express needs of your constituents. Well, abs abs ab that, absolutely. Uh, and, and particularly when we talked about the underserved community and the language is there, again, and they acknowledge that this community has not been served properly, then what is the problem? There you go. There you go. You know, I am committed. You know, I've told you I have a class of, I'm teaching, I just came from there, public policy class. They've got the bill now. I've got them reading the bill. We're planning to have a day that we're going to come over to the Capitol okay. and help you okay. and go around and talk yeah. about your bill. And so I'm trying to, as usual, trying to cover more than I'm trying to educate these students, but right. also educate them in a way that really means something where they can make a difference and we can come over. They can learn, but we can really support this bill. Right. And I think that's absolutely needed. We need more people at the Capitol. COVID notwithstanding, I understand we didn't have a lot of visitors over the last two, three years. However, we need folks to get on the turnpike, come to Oklahoma City and watch the process, but not just watch it, but be engaged and affect the process. And, and that really, really matters. We've even had conversations as it relates to mental health and the interaction with police officers when they're going out on calls, right? You bet. I, I think about, about Joshua Berry here in, in Tulsa. They were told, the officers were told before they got there, you're dealing with someone who has mental health challenges, so please handle with care, and handle with care is shooting them to death, right? We, we, we've got to do better. We've and we can do better. do better. We can, we do, can better. do better. And I hear, well, we're going to have folks embedded with us now when we go out on our trips. And we were, they're trying to do more now. However, if you don't have in, anybody that is professional in the mental health field with you, let's just have the decency and the heart to know that this is a human being. And shooting or, or tasing, all of that, maybe there's a better way to deal with people. We know people say, well, they had an encounter with the officer and they ran. They should have just complied or they wouldn't have died. Well, you know, tell that to Tyree Nichols, right? Tell that to Philando Castile. Tell that to Terrence Crutcher. There are a number of folks, Joshua Barre, so many right. folks that Breonna Taylor, the list goes on. It goes it's, on and on. Derek Scott was right here in Oklahoma City. He died saying, I can't breathe. A year before, George Floyd said, I can't breathe. In the same manner with a police officer on his body, taking his life, right? We don't have to go outside of Oklahoma to talk about how are we going to deal with these issues and why are we not dealing with them better? And when I have these conversations and then I go to the Capitol and then someone suggests that I don't like police, no, it has nothing to do with my dislike for police officers. It has to do with my dislike for injustice. It has, has to do with my dislike for murder of innocent folks. And if people do not want to take the time to understand that, 
again, these are fights worth having, and we will continue to do the best we can by God's grace. However, if one human being cannot see the value of another human being, there is not a piece of legislation, there is not a policy, there is not an elected official that can handle that. That goes back to the heart of humanity. And if you don't have that kind of heart, God help you. I hope you as listeners are listening very carefully and taking to heart what Representative Goodwin has just shared with us and talked about during during the podcast today. And I want to also encourage our listeners to help her. Let's support House Bill 1997. Nineteen ninety seven. 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 And you know, you can find that bill and read it. In the House uh, of Representatives, right. Yeah, it's you can online. Go, it's in the online in the House of Representatives and we're going to be coming over. I'm working on my class. I'm We're excited. Going to come over. I'm hoping I can get you over to actually give them a preview and come to my class. And well, you know, I'm always privileged. <clears throat> Again, it, it, it's a privilege to me to be with you because of your work in the field. And everybody, I was talking to somebody the other day, like, oh, Mike Bros, he's a great guy. Everybody <laughs> knows that, right? Oh, that's sweet. And they do. Well, they do. Well, it goes back to what you were just saying. I've tried to live my life with the humanity of you know doing the right things for the right reasons and it's it goes back to my faith right it goes back to what i believe what i've been taught and and i grew up i've shared this many times i grew up in in a racist community had Mm -hmm. racism was and i had racism still exists today in 2023 and i had to reject that i had to say i'm not going to live my life that way i'm going to change it still lives in me i have to fight it it's there i grew up hearing it around it and it's a daily constant struggle it's one worth my soul my humanity and fighting and being a better person every day trying to be amen yeah he just preached a sermon. We we co-preached today. Uh, you did <laughs> oh, really great. No, yeah, no. Yeah. We, to your point, by God's grace, we're doing what we're doing. And we got to do whatever God allows us to do and gives us the strength to do. And I never take that for granted. And we'll just keep on keeping on. I just told my students this morning in class, I get to do this. We get to, as social workers, get to do this work. How fulfilling and how meaningful it is. And it is a constant fight. And State Representative Regina Goodwin, you're up there fighting that fight every day, and we want to help and support you. And I can't thank you enough to coming on the podcast today, All Things Mental Health with Mike Bros. And I'm going to have you back here one of these days, too. Thank you for having me. You're entirely welcome.